Hello, friend. Welcome to Mr. Rewatch, your Mr. Robot recap podcast, brought to you by a stand-up comedian and a depressive hacker. I'm Aaron. I'm Devlin. Wow, it's so great. We are finally closing in on the end of season two. It feels so good. Uh, what have you been up to? Uh, well, other things that feel so good, my reverse suspenders arrived, and I'm just ecstatic about it. You, what, what makes a reverse suspender? <laughs> um... It's going to be difficult to explain this without the visual, but it's kind of like... He's acting it out right now, how well his shirt <laughs> stays tucked in. Yeah, it, it keeps my shirt tucked in because it's like an elastic that goes on your leg and clips onto the bottom of your shirt. And Dang. now I can bend over and lift my arms and all of that stuff. No problems. I wonder why it took us so long to invent that. Apparently it was like an existing invention that I just never had known about. So um, is there a song that you want to pick from this episode? There's a song that uh, the whole Mr. Rewatch team really liked in this episode. Uh, Miji Mohidari Mohidai. Uh, and I want to share the translation of the title with you because I think it's amazing. Yeah, that's the head that controls both right and left sides and eats meats and slobbers even today. Uh, that's by Bleach. looking at this is episode 10 hidden process on the opening scene we see a character who hasn't popped up for a little while terry colby is in price's office and he has a present for him a copy of his new book <laughs> i guess it must be his account of what happens this reminds me of uh, a, a much simpler time back before the the election because they hint toward trump running for president in this scene well, there's so many um, details like when uh, in the FBI scenes when they keep talking about Comey and we all know what happened to him. And so, you know, this does definitely anchor it right before the election occurs. So there are a lot of little references like that. I wonder if that will make it seem really dated when we listen or watch it again in the future. I wondered that actually, or it might seem historical, right? Like it might bring us back to <laughs> a, a kinder, gentler time when only Philip Price is really trying to take over the world. Uh, Price needs a favor. That's not very shocking. He's trying to get it from Colby because he thinks that uh, somebody owes him a favor. It's about um, China attempting to annex the Congo. I, I had some trouble understanding this. Well, it, it is a bit opaque because Price needs him to go see their friend. So whoever this friend is, is, is someone that Price can't access directly and someone who's able to be influential uh, in those spheres. So I'm sure we'll learn more because this Congo storyline seems to be building and building and I wouldn't be surprised. I'm just going to start throwing out season three predictions in these last few episodes if the Congo storyline becomes very present and China's role in it. I agree with that as well. Uh, Colby says Price is trading countries like playing cards at this point. Because for Price, I think nations are very artificial borders. Oh yeah, a quote that really stood out is that he says that um, history is basically just imaginary lines being drawn and redrawn. Colby is a bit mystified why Price does all of this uh, and why he's involved in so many nefarious dealings. Price's motivation, I mean, here I think an all along seems to be purely acquiring power. 
Yeah, he's very overt about it here, not exactly subtle, but it's not as though it's a mystery. It's more like this is just the first time he's made it so explicit. I think this scene is set up here for some foreshadowing for things that will take hold. Uh, they don't take hold in this season, but I do think we're going to see this circle back in season three. So there's a really abrupt transition here to a Joanna scene with some, uh, I think it's thrashcore. I'm not sure if that's actually the name of the genre, but it's some really great tunes. We see Joanna Wellick getting ready. I have to say, the longer the series goes on, the more I like Sutherland. He is like a kind of mysterious figure, I feel. I wonder if I'll ever flesh him out more. We do see in the next couple of episodes, actually in this episode, I believe there's a tiny bit of character development for him, but we never get a lot. But he's an interesting combination of sort of protector and goon. <laughs> hired goons. <laughs> he is. I believe he is a hired goon, indeed. Um the reason they have to go on this trip is because he didn't do something that he was tasked with doing. And you wonder why that is, because he's done some pretty sh- pretty terrible things in service of the Wellicks. Yeah, to say the least. I guess they're hinting at his um, inability to track to and who was sending them the gifts. Is that what it was? That's what we learn it is, because... So I should have mentioned earlier, this initial scene is a bit of a flashback, because they're, you know... Joanna's kind of reading him and um, they accept that he's failed at this task. And that's when they roll down the window and she says, hello, Ollie, and confronts Elliot on the street. So that kind of anchors the timeline uh, with the previous episode. This gives us more of that, though, because then we see Elliot in the Wellick's house, which is a very strange scene. I don't think we ever expect to see him kind of in their world. Yeah. Um, as much as we see Tyrell encroach into his. So now he's there. And Joanna puts him on edge big time. Oh, no kidding. And he kind of has his own uh, personal troubles going on right now because he's not really sure if Joanna can hear his thoughts or maybe if he's speaking out loud. And he also wonders if she can see Mr. Robot. I sort of wonder... I guess that's just because she makes him... I don't know if she intimidates him or makes him feel paranoid. I don't think we have any evidence that she has any awareness of any of these things about him. No, I think that Elliot's just like lost his mind at this point. He probably would be thinking the same thing with anyone. Joanna is testing a theory here because she's quite interested in finding Tyrell. So she says she knows they work together. She wants him to help her trace those calls and find her husband. Elliot, at this point, he's not even really sure if her husband is still alive. And he knows how dangerous Joanna is, so he doesn't really want to be involved with her. Um, he, tries to, he tries to leave, but Sutherland prevents him. Joanna, I, what I love about her is the way she's menacing is, is kind of lovely. So he declines. Um, she also tells him the story of those cubic zirconia earrings. Ah, yeah, the cheapest earrings she owns. But those come up a lot in this season. They do, and her favorites. Um but she just approaches him and says, do you really want to say no to me? And something in that question makes him accept this task. I could imagine how threatening that would be to Elliot because it's not only just that she says this to him, but she walks right up to him, gets up close to his personal space, and then puts her hand on his head and takes off his hood. So especially knowing how kind of protective Elliot is and how much he appreciates his privacy and his personal space and stuff, I bet that that just makes him feel even more afraid of Joanna. Well, one thing that is kind of terrifying about her is that she is very comfortable um, being confrontational and approaching people's personal space, even though she could be very vulnerable in that. So she's not afraid of shit. Yeah, she does this with complete confidence. And it's not even just because Mother Sutherland is there, because she demonstrates this in other scenes as well. 
so this episode is sewing up a lot of things that were established in the last episode. So remember when Darlene's at Cisco's, she hears a knock on the door. Well, Cisco has picked up uh, F Society Dude Bro One. Yeah. If you remember him from the DC operation and all of those things. And he's been, it looks like badly beaten. He's unconscious. Yeah. It turns out his actual name is Vincent. And um, he's unconscious. He was found at the smart home when Cisco ran there to find that tape that they left behind. And now they're talking about bringing him to the hospital. But Darlene is sort of afraid of that. She's concerned even that there might be a tracker on his person. She's very paranoid about that. The two of them have a pretty explosive confrontation. Um, because Cisco, I think, is rightly concerned, if you look at the extent of the injuries, that this guy's just going to die on his couch. And they've already disposed of one body recently, so this feels like a lot. Um, interestingly, so he says that she's not a leader, and he tells her to wake up. And if you remember, that really recalls the language that Darlene would use in trying to rile up all of these new F Society members and around the 5-9 hack, that she would say that people were finally awake. I find that interesting. There is, I mean, this is a technique used in social engineering, and I think humans use it naturally, uh, called parroting or mimicking, where when you use the vocabulary that someone else uses, uh, it tends to make them feel comfortable. That's interesting. I've heard stuff like that before, especially like um, using people's names more often in conversation, like just by sprinkling that in every now and then it can really make somebody um, like, like, like what they're hearing. Um, but I also remember my first ever job was in a call center and they were saying that it was a good idea to mirror like the rate of speech and talk at the same pace as the person you're speaking with. But it was possible that you could um, accidentally like copy their diction in a way that seems like mocking. So I would need to be careful of that. You know, it's funny. My first job was also a call center. What were you selling? I was selling, this is how old I am, newspaper subscriptions. Wow. I was selling life insurance. Wow. One thing that you're really right about is any of these techniques, um, like paraphrasing, you know, like what I hear you saying is we should take F Society Dude Bro onto the hospital. Um, anything that is overused or too explicit um, it seems patronizing and it backfires on you. So you're exactly right that if you go too far, this absolutely doesn't work. And it seems like you're reading out of some kind of active listening textbook. <laughs> um, but whatever he says, um, we'll wait until the next appearance to see if it's enough to convince her. Next up, Dom and the FBI are at that smart house that was converted into F Society HQ. The FBI have a really big presence there, and Dom is kind of annoyed that basically they burned that location. So now it's obvious that they're on whoever it was using the space is going to be well aware of their activity there. Another thing they're well aware of at this point is that Susan Jacobs is missing, because this is her home after all. And I think that they're kind of trying to establish a connection to the DC operation. They do say they think it has something to do with the DC activists uh, who have been nicknamed teabaggers, <laughs> which initially I thought was sort of like, ah, they're the anti-tea party. But, but I have been corrected. I have been corrected because obviously their mission was to drop bull testicles through the roof of Congress. So, you know, I think it works. It's a metaphor that works on many levels. I wish we had recorded your reaction when I told you that. We got to stop talking before it's actually. Ta what is a conversation if we're not documenting it? Good points. 
So they talk about the activists involved in the DC operation. They say that there was a car crash. A few of them were apprehended, but one of them got away. And presumably that's Vincent, who is the one with all these injuries. So all of these stories are starting to converge because now, you know, what Darlene and Cisco know, the FBI is also on to in closer to real time than they're typically aware of the activity of um, F society activists. I think it's really interesting to see things from the FBI's perspective in this scene, because you kind of get to see the situation from the perspective of FBI and uh, from F society. And neither of them have the full picture, but you can kind of piece the details together from both of their perspectives to get it yourself. Let's turn back to Elliot. Sutherland is driving him home, and Elliot has some serious questions for himself about whether this is the future that he was fighting for. Yeah, we mentioned before that um, garbage is starting to pile up. People are kind of switching to a bartering system and just trading their products on the street. And Elliot is starting to realize that this hack had more repercussions than just affecting big financial institutions. It's really affecting everybody in every layer of society. I think he's also made a mistake here that is not unique to Elliot in any way, where he thought they were fighting a battle that would be won and concluded. And now he says to himself, you know, maybe wars aren't meant to be won, maybe wars are meant to be continuous. And I also do think that's a reference to, you know, certainly the United States has been involved in um, at least two very extended conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan over in recent memory, where, you know, there was no clean exit or or end to those conflicts. I think that you could relate that to like uh, Vietnam and really, um, well, basically like every war that America has been in. I actually have a statistic here that um, the states have been at war 222 out of 239 years since 1776. But I, I also don't want to um, single them out too much because war has kind of just been a constant throughout human history. <laughs> So big questions for Elliot. Um, he's going to have to turn his mind shortly to some more pressing problems right in front of him. But, you know, he's got a, a couple peaceful minutes to think uh, with Sutherland uh, on his way home. There's one stop that Elliot has to make first, though, because he did just get out of prison. He hasn't really got back all of his um, computer hardware yet. So he's able to convince Sutherland to bring him by a micro center, which I think is like an actual American company that we Canadians just aren't really familiar with. Uh, he does buy some hardware. He kind of goes on a bit of a shopping spree. And he also uses the opportunity to try and call Tyrell. But I think that he's unsuccessful. Well, in the store, so the phone that Joanna has asked him to track is on his person. He gets a call on it that he tries to answer. And when he picks it up, it's just heavy breathing. There's nobody talking on the other end of the line. So this looks to us like Tyrell is reaching out to him. Oh, man. I think that I I had misinterpreted the phone call in the same way that Joanna had. So that's pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's a common mistake. <laughs> so the next scenes, we're actually going to cleave apart two interspersed scenes where they keep cutting back and forth just because we think it'll be a much easier way for us to share the story with you. Is it like a montage? Is that what that's called? I guess it is a montage. I don't know if that's the right usage of the term. I only know that the usage makes sense in terms of a training montage from a fight movie. I only know how it makes sense in the terms of Call of Duty. Uh, see, <laughs> this is not like either of those things. But let's first look at Darlene. Cisco has been persuasive enough to convince her that they need to take uh, Vincent F Society Dupro One to a clinic and get him some medical care so that he doesn't die on their couch. 
she's really starting to experience a lot of self-doubt here. And I wonder if that's because of what Cisco had told her or if it had kind of um, catalyzed some latent self-esteem issues that she has. But she keeps saying things like, I'm not a leader, I'm not special. And it's kind of sad to see that Darlene feels this way. Well, she's so... She looks quite deflated and, and crushed. And I mean, remember for her, she's also seen the consequences of her actions in a very real way where, you know, she helped organize these people. She riled them up. She was involved in this DC operation that she had let them carry out. And now this guy's practically dead because of it. So for her, I don't think she has experienced a direct negative consequence yet because she as felt better about the outcome of the hack than most of the F Society team. But this feels very real. So they take him to a clinic and they decide to wait. So she and Cisco are having a conversation in the waiting room while they wait to find out what's going to happen. And during this waiting period, they get really deep into some weird childhood stuff. First, I just want to circle back for one sec because they talk a bit about, they're both asking each other, what Elliot has to do with stage two and what's going on, neither of them really know. So they've got a missing piece of information. But Darlene's recognized here. She says again, you know, I'm not special. You know, it was always Elliot and Elliot's the one that they're taking seriously. So I think she also feels pushed aside in a way. Yeah, well, I guess like Elliot is probably one of the most skilled people in this fictional universe. So Darlene must kind of feel like he was growing up in his shadow. Darlene... It's so interesting where their childhood has been so horrible, the two of them, that it, it does inform the people they become. And she's talking about a really weird incident at Coney Island, which, remember, was where the F Society original headquarters was located when she was only five. And this is an experience that might have been traumatizing to other kids, but she says she loved it. This is when she got lost. So she gets lost, and I guess uh, I've never been to Coney Island. I couldn't tell. I guess it's like a big carnival, big fair, lots of people. She gets lost. She's not scared. And actually, if you had that family, I mean, like, maybe you'd be pretty happy too. I don't know. But uh, an old woman finds her. And this is the first time an adult's ever shown her any real kindness. Oh, that's so sad. And uh, she basically just wants to go live with a stranger, doesn't she? Well, the stranger, in fact, takes her to her house. And she... You know what's funny? There are like three Law and Order episodes about, you know, women who kidnap children and give them better lives, but then they get prosecuted anyway. Huh. It's just a shout out for the 27th Precinct, my other podcast. But, you know, um, maybe it's a phenomenon. You know, there's this other podcast called More Perfect from Radio Lab, which is about the Supreme Court. And there's one really cool episode that is very sad about a family who is given an adopted Native American child. And then after like many years, the, the father took the kid back after they had like developed bonds with the new family. Oh, that is tragic. But this doesn't last years. This really only lasts overnight. So Darlene's at this woman's house. Um, this is her first interaction with the police. And no wonder she has the feeling she has because they barge in and they kind of rip her out of this nice. Well, as a child, she imagines it would be a nice new life and they take her back home. And she says the only good thing that's come out of all of that is that at least she went back and she has Elliot now because of it. They check in at the clinic before they leave. They find out that the guy is on a respirator and it's going to be at least an hour until they have any new information about him. So Elliot's half of this montage takes place in his apartment. Mr. Sutherland is supervising him as he attempts to trace down these phone calls. He got some hardware from Micro Center, including a very high-tech Pringles can with which he builds something called a cantenna. 
Uh, Darlene used something like this, a more, a more high-tech version, when she was exfiltrating data from the FBI in an earlier episode. But this is a kind of lo-fi version of the exact same thing, where it just kind of um, concentrates the Wi-Fi signal and lets it and makes it easier to get a, a better connection. It finally explained to me why you can always buy Pringles at Best Buy. It's for if you get out of prison and it needs to stock up. Now I know. Now I know. Um, what else happens here? Um, I like this is the first time we really get any character development on Sutherland. Yeah, we were talking about that earlier. He's kind of been inscrutable so far, but I guess we got a, a little bit of a glimpse into his personality here. Well, he really lets his guard down for Elliot being someone that he doesn't know and obviously like potential threat to him, where he says he half wants Tyrell back and he half doesn't. Also, what we learn is I guess he's always been sort of a, a bodyguard for for people and he says that all of his clients were really eccentric so from the stories he tells it sounds like the Wellicks might actually be some of the better employers that he's had over the course of time that's hard to imagine that is hard to imagine um what else happens in this scene Elliot impersonates an NYPD officer on the phone in order to get the blocked call traced pretty clever trick there it's a pretty clever trick, and because I am uh, almost finished reading The Ghost in the Wire at this point, it's also very referential to the Kevin Mitnick story and the way that he would um, get information from law enforcement and from phone companies in order to carry out the hacking he was doing. So another reference there, I think, to that story. A couple of other things that are important. Mr. Robot's been missing in action since Micro Center. Yeah, he just disappeared at that point and hasn't really been seen since. And that's because Elliot still has a lot of questions about how much awareness Mr. Robot might have about Tyrell's disappearance and what he knows. He's not available to even ask at this point. The later episodes in the season get really confusing about even such basic questions as who's real and who isn't. He, Elliot does think that Mr. Robot wanted something from the house, and that's why they found themselves back there. And then I really like this shot where he invites us, the invisible friend, to take a look for it. I really like that, too. And I bet there are all kinds of Easter eggs in there, but I didn't really uh, scrutinize it too much. If someone would watch this scene in slow motion and tell us, I also believe there's probably quite a lot of hidden hidden gems in that scene. At the end of all of this, Elliot is successful in finding out the location of where the calls are being made. Sutherland's kind of surprised at what the location is, and he seems pretty displeased about it. But we know that they now have a, a follow-up point uh, in their work to track down Tyrell. Now, earlier in the episode, there was a very brief scene of Dom and Santiago, her supervisor at the office. They are having an argument about whether a, a bolo, I had to look up what that is, uh, be on the lookout. Um, bulletin will be put out for uh, the composite sketch that they now have of Cisco. Have you noticed that the Santiago character exists for the sole purpose of dismissing all of Dom's ideas? I know, and I can't tell if he is just like trying to mansplain law enforcement to her or if it's like a very purposeful way of showing that even inside her own organization, she's kind of an activist rogue agent. It just strikes me as like detective fiction trope, to be honest. <laughs> it's true. Like he's the foil to everything and she has to fight against all of his ideas. Uh, she loses this fight. They're going to put it out. One other piece of information we get here that's valuable, she's so against it because she says they've already lost Sunil Markesh, so Mobley's gone. And that really makes you wonder, because you haven't seen him since uh, since the FBI interrogation, right? 
Well, the la- that's right, because he asks Trenton to meet him and then the episode ends with her alone at Ron's coffee. So that raises a lot of questions about his whereabouts. They may have found a lead on a taxi cab that may have transported Cisco, so that does give them a bit of an insight into into where he may be and they are continuing the search for him. The lead on the cab at least gives them an address to try to track this guy down. I don't think they have any other information about him until they get to the apartment. Yeah, I wasn't really clear on how they had found the apartments that they were going to raid. Uh, they do correctly find Cisco's apartment, though. They find and take his ID with his uh, picture and real name on it. I think if I was there, I also would have taken that really cool Regulators Let's Dance poster. Maybe it's like looted the whole place. <laughs> but yeah, now they, now they know his identity. So things are kind of uh, gaining pace here. I like that his real name is Francis Shaw, which just sounds like a very unhackery name, I guess. Darlene and Cisco have some time to kill, and they decide to go out to um, a Mexican diner. It is Mexican, right? It is, yeah. But they get, like, bacon and eggs. I wish we had Mexican diners around here. Hey, that's right. You know? I'm going to move to a bigger town. <laughs> um, they have a lot to talk about right now. Uh, they're all kind of afraid of the Dark Army, and Darlene is also getting a little tired of being so afraid. She's, she's really paranoid. Well, she wants to wipe the apartment and leave, and Cisco thinks that's a terrible idea. So that's a bit of the argument that they're having over dinner. Yeah, as it was mentioned in a previous episode, if they were to leave, that would just be a red flag to the Dark Army, and they would not have any difficulty chasing them down. Earlier in the episode, Elliot had received a text from Angela asking to see him, so they meet up on the subway. Yeah, I guess that Elliot is done tracking down that phone number now, so he's got a little bit of freedom. Uh, well, I guess not that much freedom in the sense that they are meeting each other on the subway, but they do get that opportunity. Angela levels at him pretty quickly that she knows everything. She says, why did you start F Society? Part of the reason she knows is that they always made her watch that scary movie when they were little kids and she hated it. Maybe they shouldn't have picked a, such a recognizable mask. They must have thought that she would never remember or never even thought about it at all. But he's shocked um, that she's brought it up. Uh, Angela's decided that this fight is over for her. And she's taking such extreme actions as to confess. She's on the way to the lawyer. Exactly. She's going to cop to the femme to sell plot. She also says, you know, Elliot, we can't beat them. We will always lose to them. So she feels very powerless, which is a great contrast to kind of power Angela that we've been seeing over the last little while where she feels uh, emboldened and she's taking risks and she's really been shut down kind of in a parallel to Darlene here. So she feels totally hopeless. She's going to confess and see what, you know, do the best for herself that she can without implicating the others. She's also trying to... Um kind of warn Elliot that maybe he's not walking along the right path here, though. She suggests that Mr. Robot is maybe not the best influence on him. And she also says something like, um, you just can't work with him. It's not a good idea. They hug and Elliot kisses her. Very tender moments. And then she tells him to get off the subway and he goes. Immediately afterwards, um, a couple of people walk up to her. You don't really see what happens, but it definitely doesn't look very good. It does not look good. So scary moment for Angela, who's now all alone. So, meanwhile, Dom has been investigating, and now she is at the clinic where, just moments before, Darlene and Cisco were waiting. Right. She only came here for Cisco, though. And now finding out that Darlene is there is kind of just a happy accident, I guess. <laughs> like, 
Bob Ross would say it. She was initially remember she was worried that once they saw the bullet and come out, they would take off and be lost forever like Mobley is. In her conversation with the nurse, she realizes, though, that they didn't actually see the bulletin. And so she knows that they're probably still around. That's a very impressive intuition. It almost seemed like a a house moment. She decides she's going to set it on foot and see if she can just find them in the area nearby. So she starts asking around where there might be places to eat. She hears there's a diner about five blocks from there. That must have been a really long five blocks walking towards <laughs> Target. You've been tracking, you know, for so long involved in this huge plot. So she sees the diner. She realizes they're inside. She calls for backup. And as she's running up to the diner. She kind of tries to get Cisco uh, and Darlene to come with her. But they're interrupted by a, a dark army assailants, or two of them actually, who come up on a motorcycle and attack them with a machine gun. This reminds me of, do you remember watching Mulan when we were kids? I do, but I don't remember the machine guns. <laughs> That's not where I'm going. <laughs> but there's a really terrifying scene in it where one of the Huns, um, they're sending a villager back with a message. There are two of them. And one of the Huns, the villain in the story, looks at the other and says, how many people does it take to deliver a message? one and then he shoots one of them and lets the other oh one God. live to tell the story wow that show we were allowed to watch that as kids it's my favorite disney movie it's, <laughs> it's terrifying it's actually the only disney movie i've ever seen i haven't seen like the lion king or beauty and the beast or any of that crap no not you saw the lion king no never what <laughs> anyway before i get too off track i was busy watching the shawshank redemption and pulp fiction that year when you were that's probably not far off (laughs) um so there are two dark army riders and uh as i've alluded only one of them makes it back so one of them gets off the motorcycle they take out an automatic weapon they open fire on the diner this is as the cops are approaching so the the shooter themselves gets shot and the other the driver on the motorcycle rides away Uh, a police officer does try and face them so their story doesn't really get resolved here In fact, uh, no story really gets resolved here because the camera is just taking a single, unmoving, long take. It never gets close enough to the diner to actually see what's going on in there. You don't really know what happens to uh, to Cisco or to Darlene. We do kind of establish that Dom is okay, but she also is covered in blood or ketchup or something like that. So definitely not a good situation to be in. And that brings us to the end of this episode. A very intense episode, that's for sure. Thank you so much for listening to Mr. Rewatch. We recorded this episode in Hamilton. If you liked our episode today, we'd encourage you to consider contributing to Dames Making Games. This is a space for genderqueer, non-binary, femmes, two-spirit people, as well as trans and cis women to create games freely. And you can donate to them at dmg.to. I'm Devlin. And I'm Erin. Bonsoir. <laughs>